Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. C-C. Yeah, and A, I'll go B, big G, big E, yeah. Dang, 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 dang. Fuck. Dang, dang, dang. You're just walking E to left. So ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. What? Did I just miss that? Oh, weird. Okay. And welcome back to Flower Politic Podcast. It is the 4th of July, you're our Lord 2020. Move the show up one day because my son was supposed to come over today, but he's not coming until tomorrow, so we'll celebrate our 4th of July as a family. We're going to do a breakfast, kind of different because he has to work. But I thought I'd start with a little more patriotic. I was going to do a patriotic show and I, I left, I just let the liberals get me down, man. They, they, they won because I couldn't come up with anything patriotic the other day. And then BRC Coffee. Yeah, they got me. They got me with that national anthem in steel. Heather Lynn coming out of a car in a bib shorts. Blazing a freaking nine mil. I gotta admit, pretty freaking sexy. So, 
going to have some negative stuff today because we're going to find out all sorts of new things are racist because that's what we're doing. So we're going to cover a couple things up front, a little bit of violence, a short woke section. This is not going to be super long because there are a lot of op-eds I wanted to read today. There's a Mike Lee speech I want to read. I'm not going to play President Trump's speech, but when we get to the Rushmore stuff, my God in heaven. You know, just a while ago, Mount Rushmore was great. The flag was great. National Anthem was great. Now everything's fucking sorry racist. So, to continue with this positive before we get to the dumb shit, VR, uh, MRC put out the five most patriotic scenes from movie. It was Rocky Four, Red Dawn, Independence Day, Patton, John Adams. And I would be just totally non-American, not a vet, if I didn't play George Patton's speech from the movie Patton, and Wolverines from Red Dawn. We'll then go into our Violent Left segment, and you'll find out that the national parks are fucking racist. America! to remember that no bastard ever won war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. And then all this stuff you've heard about America not wanting to fight, wanting to stay out of the war, is a lot of horse dung. Americans traditionally love to fight. All real Americans love the sting of battle. When you were kids, you all admired the champion marble shooter, the fastest runner, big league ball players, the toughest boxers. Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans play to win all the time. I wouldn't give a hoot in hell for a man who lost and laughed. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war. Because the very thought of losing is hateful to Americans.
realize the biggest terror threat in this country is white men, most of them radicalized right up to the right. All punches are not equal morally. America's national parks and public lands have long been places of refuge in times of turmoil. But new government data first shared with ABC News shows people of color are less likely to take advantage of the great outdoors. Our Devin Dwyer takes a look at why that is and why it's so important for our collective health and the future of the parks themselves. The sweeping vistas stir the soul. Wildlife and waterfalls awaken a sense of wonder. The American wilderness, a playground for old and for young, and overwhelmingly white. When you look around, you don't see people that you identify with. You don't feel welcome. You feel out of place. You feel literally like you are an outsider. Ambreen Tarek is founder of Brown People Camping. When she was eight years old, her family moved from India to Minnesota, where she fell in love with the outdoors. Twenty years later, she's still astonished not to see more people like her. Some people might say, isn't this just that people of color don't like to camp? Yeah. And to that, I would say... No, right? That's a generalization. And they're just because something isn't happening or the presence of someone is missing does not mean they don't want to be there. To many Americans of color, parks, campgrounds, and forest land are stubborn bastions of self-segregation. After 12,500 miles, 15 national parks, and untold state parks, we saw, I saw two black people. She said she saw four. four. I saw four. That was 1995 when Frank and Audrey Peterman took their first road trip to explore the nation's natural wonders. The history of America's wilderness loomed large. Historically, in the South in particular, uh, many atrocious things that happened to black people uh, in the woods. Racism was a factor at the founding of America's national parks, created in part to be an escape for white urban elites. Several were racially segregated into the 1950s, many considered uninviting to people of color into the 1990s. We have an inherent fear, we do, because of our history about going into these remote rural places where we're not sure that will be accepted. Lauren Gay, the self-described outdoorsy diva, blogs about her experiences as a woman of color in the wilderness. Uh, So when you don't see it in marketing and advertising, for one, in the psyche, you don't necessarily think this is something that's for me. We have to be responsive to those needs. The National Park Service says the persistent whiteness of its 419 parks is an existential crisis. David Vela is the first Latino to lead the agency. Do you think the parks are affected by systemic racism? I think that uh, as a person of color, uh, I I think that uh, our national parks and what I've found, they're places where we can learn more about what happened in the past. Um, because that reflects our thinking today. In a report first shared with ABC News, the Park Service finds 77% of its visitors are white. Just 23% are people of color. Minorities make up 42% of the U.S. population. What's the biggest factor behind the disparity? I think it's going to vary among communities of color. Uh, the, the lack of transportation opportunities is clearly going to be a factor. But what a lot of folks don't understand is that uh, we're closer than what you think, especially in the urban areas. 
The national parks have tried marketing to minority communities with ads like these, training staff on sensitivity and hiring more rangers from diverse backgrounds. Less than 20% of the 20,000 Park Service employees are non-white. You need to have that cultural diversity reflected on both sides of the, of the visitor center desk, at the entrance station, at the campgrounds. Ranger Shelton Johnson has pushed diversity in the parks for 20 years, teaching countless visitors to Yosemite in California about the Buffalo Soldiers, the African-Americans who helped protect park land a century ago. That has a profound impact because they're not expecting that story at all. Black people in Yosemite, black people in Yosemite, we have arrived. I think that's just wonderful. In 2010, his outreach got a boost when Oprah Winfrey wanted to go camping. I just said to myself, you know what, that would be powerful if if the, the world's biggest celebrity, who is African-American, issued the, the invitation to the African-American community that I always dreamed of when I was a kid. Do you think it had an impact? It was Oprah. Next question. Of course, of course it had an impact. But many say progress is still not happening quickly enough. If we don't address this and we don't see how all these things are interrelated, then we're, we, we're going to risk losing everything. We're not going to have public lands to enjoy. Groups like the Sierra Club have begun education campaigns within minority communities to promote access to nature and its physical and mental health benefits. If we look at it from a humanitarian um, perspective, this is, these are matters of life and death for some people. We need to have a conversation about how are people getting outdoors and connecting with nature where they live, in their neighborhoods. What all the recent events with George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, the Central Park incident are shining a light on uh, black people in particular, but other people of color don't have that freedom to have that experience. You're worried about somebody calling the police on you. You're worried about just having a negative interaction based solely on the color of your skin. Danielle Williams, a fourth-generation U.S. Army veteran and outdoor advocate, says racial profiling and stereotyping remain major concerns. A lot of us, we've been saying the same message over and over for, for years and for some people longer, um, but people have been listening. Protests for racial equality after the death of George Floyd last month give Williams hope that attitudes can change. She says in the outdoors, it means openness to camping options beyond backpacks and tents. We have to kind of tone down the elitism and just think about our language when we talk about the outdoors because car camping, that's great, right? Camping in your backyard, if you live in a family home, that's also wonderful. The survival of our national parks may depend on those families and their interest in spending time there. The census projects people of color will be a majority in America by 2044, a demographic shift that will impact park attendance and finances. If we don't make ourselves relevant to current and future generations, who is going to be the advocates for the protection and preservation of our nation's public lands? And... Who's going to wear these uniforms? Our values aren't going to change, but how we do business has to. Advocates say allies of people of color have a big part to play. What can I do as a white person to be more welcoming to somebody of color? There are the most basic things you can do. One of the things I always talk about is when you see someone, smile and say hi. Treat us as you would any other person that you see, you know, Try really hard to swallow that, that question of, oh, what brings you here? Well, the same thing that brings you here. 
The Petermans say progress is possible. There's been a tremendous improvement, and it's largely coming from inside our communities. After visits to 185 parks in 47 states, they're optimistic more families of color will be joining them in the outdoors. They tell the story of the evolution of America. So if you want to know that story, and now there's so much um, confusion about the real American story, you will find them in the national parks. For ABC News Live, I'm Devin Dwyer in Rock Creek Park. Yes, yes, yes. That's just fucking fantastic. ABC News reports national park fake existential crisis over race are stubbornly white. That's right. Park range uniforms look kind of like law enforcement uniforms. We're scaring away minorities. So fast forward past the Obama's trips... Several trips as a family national parks to drum up business in 2020, when again we're hearing that attendance in national parks is mostly white. We've been through stay-at-home orders with everyone itching to get outside, but outdoor spaces and our national parks are not free from systemic racism and inequality that exists in other parts of our society. 77% of the national park visitors are white. New National New National Park Service data seen first by ABC News Live shows parks have remained stubbornly white spaces over the last 10 years despite efforts to raise awareness and improve access. This is Stephanie Ebbs. Now understand, they only did this because Trump was going to Mount Rushmore. So Trump going and doing something patriotic, which we'll get in a second, because that's our next segment, we have to dog that because that's what we do. In here, minorities make up 42% of the U.S. population. No, no, they actually don't, but... They go through all these statistics and they say that it's 77% white. And when asked if they share the same interests as people who visit national parks, 34% of black respondents and 27% of Hispanics said no, compared to only 11% white. And some figures close to the conservation movement like Madison Ground have founded organizations like Bronx Zoo espouse actively racist ideology. You're looking at a time during Jim Crow segregation. It didn't stop because we were talking about conservation trail or because we are talking about the environment. It did not stop. It's Jim Crow. I'm not reading the article. It's a fucking joke. Because if you go and actually do some fucking research... Population of the United States. Estimate, July 1st, 2019. 328,239,523. Race, white, alone, 76.3% white. 13% black, African American. American Indian, 1.3. Asian, 5.9. Native American, 0.2. Two or more races, 2.8. Hispanic, 18.5. White alone, not Hispanic or Latino percent, 50.1. But if you total, total the white in America, white is 76.3%. So basically, you're saying that white alone, 76.3%. 
Then people mixed other shit in there, but they're considered white Caucasian. That's the exact amount of people going to the parks. 77%. 33 percent or 23% are other that pretty much is our country, dickheads. And then within this, veterans. 18 million, 611,432. Uh, 611,432. Veterans. Do you know that's 0.5% of the country is veteran? It's pretty much what I say on the podcast. See, maybe I researched that. But all I heard through this whole thing was this. The more you know. They can roll this out because people are stupid. People are fucking stupid. They don't go out and research anything. And so they can run some statistics that 77% of the people going to parks are white. Well, maybe that's because 77% of the people that are white want to go to the parks. They enjoy the parks. That's what their preference is. Don't know a lot of black people that like to go camping. I know a lot of them like to fish. And I guarantee they're not counting that. Because I will guarantee over 40% of the fishermen I run into on LBL, which is a national park, are black. Of course, they're not the cool black. They're the conservative blacks that don't get counted as blacks because they're not running around burning everything down. Got it. JT Rona. I don't think I've ever seen a 62 to nothing ratio, and yet 100% of the people are allowed into parks. Maybe it's something else. Why can't we make black people visit national parks? My misanthropy grows sometimes. I wonder if these people actually take themselves seriously. No shit. So the associate director of the Sarah Club can assert systemic racism in our national parks as well as the rest of society without any further elaboration. A real reporter would ask for scientific examples of Park Service expulsionary policies that could be considered. Systemic, white, 79.96, black, 12.85, Asian, 0.43, American Indian, 0.97, Native American, other, 0.18, two or more races, 1.61. U.S. Census info, so that's the issue. All it takes for the numbers to change is for minorities to go. Go to the parks. That's it. It's literally that simple. Are you a minority? Would you like the number to change? Yes to both. Go to the fucking park. That person did the same thing. Of course, I did it first. The first thing I did was find Rasmussen. And it's exactly the demographics of our country. I'm sorry the majority of the country's white liberals. The problem is the people bitching the most about it, you're white. Stop going to the park. That makes it really simple. Don't go to the park. Because you think it's systemic racism. I'm all down with that. They'll give me easier fishing access. It'll be greater when I do a trip to the Grand Canyon. Great. Go fuck yourself. I mean, the simple fact of it, it costs money. And a lot of people don't want to pay money to go out. That could have been an angle on this. And no... Everybody looking for something racist to talk about. I'm not saying black people don't have money. What I'm saying is, white, black, Hispanic, some people don't want to spend money. We go to Fort Pickens at Pensacola Beach. We have to pay 20 bucks for a week pass. It's only us out there. That's how I did my 25th anniversary, by ourselves on our own pristine beach, 50 feet from our car. 
Because nobody goes there. They stop. They don't want to pay money to go to the free beaches. But that's a national park. I pay the $18 because I want to be by myself. And when we go in there, the majority of people are white. Am I supposed to stop going? But it really had nothing to do with the national parks. This was spinning up for his Rushmore. And before I play the sound bites, and once again, I'm not going to play a speech. I thought it was good. It was sad. He's given a history lesson because our schools no longer teach history. They just paraphrase American history as everybody was a racist, and then they move on to gay fucking, uh, fucking uh, what are those fucking things, coach drivers like they're doing in California. He was a gay transgender coach driver. His name was Paddywhack Jim. Woo! And all that stupid shit. But I had a conversation with somebody about Rushmore and this, and it really comes down to none of these people care. They don't care about facts. They don't care about anything. He was going on railing on Trump going to Rushmore and that we're going to catch everything on fire. And he was getting it all from CNN because they were running segments that's really dangerous. Grass fires could stop. It's really dangerous, as we're going to see, because everybody on the walls racist. It's really dangerous. They were trying to do everything to sway the public to say what Trump was about to do is horrible. You shouldn't watch it because we don't want you to vote for him. That's all it was about. And when I railed down to this guy that I'm an independent, I'm not a Trumper, but this isn't new. They used to do this all the time. 2016 candidates went to fucking Mount Rushmore, Bernie Sanders. And as you'll hear, CNN was all good about it. And he goes, what don't you understand about pathetic? And I just blocked him. Because they don't want facts. It's unadulterated hate of Trump. It doesn't matter that Trump's not doing anything. Whatever the media puts out, they can get away with it. And that's why the media does it. Because everybody out there just wants to hear Trump sucks. So they'll run any stupid story they can. CNN literally labeled the fucking Mount Rushmore a racist white supremacist epitaph. You're then going to hear tribal elders brought out on MSNBC to say, we, the Lakota tribe, don't want him here. He can't be here. Even though if you research it, three different Indian tribes own that. They all stole it from each other. It was just the Lakota that stole it last. So they really can't bitch about the white man stealing it. And then you're going to hear a 2016 soundbite with Bernie Sanders and CNN saying how great Mount Rushmore was. For the folks who live here, it's concern on two fronts, really the coronavirus, which you've laid out, and then this matter of history and the historical context that we find ourselves in. You know, shortly after that rally in Tulsa on Juneteenth, people here viewing the president similarly as picking this spot and this date and doing it on purpose. When you talk to leaders inside the Native American community, they will remind you that this is indigenous land promised to the Lakota community in 1868 and then betrayed by the U.S. government, that treaty betrayed. Take a listen to the head of the NDN Collective and how he describes the monument behind me. The biggest message is that Mount Rushmore is, is really a national symbol, symbolism, a symbol of white supremacy. When you have, when you carve out, you know, four white men who were colonizers, who committed genocide against indigenous people, and then steal that land from them and carve these faces into this sacred place, that and, and, and for that to be okay in society today is fundamentally wrong. 
As we continue to sort of review and face our own history, it's worth reminding folks that the man who carved the monument behind me had deep ties to the KKK, that this was sacred and still is sacred land, the Black Hills here in South Dakota, to these sovereign nations who live here. Add to that the backdrop that you are talking about, a concern over possibly forest fires. Fireworks stopped here in 2009. We had the governor of North Dakota basically taking credit for bringing it back and supported by the president, Craig. The celebration of U.S. independence, once declared by founding fathers that wrote, all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the very rights being celebrated on Independence Day are the same rights that millions of Americans say they and their ancestors have not been allowed to enjoy. What does Independence Day mean to you? I will always be a proud American, but that doesn't mean I don't realize the faults and the flaws that this country has. For historian and author Jesse Holland, that includes the injustice that has led to unrest across the country, the inequalities in communities of color highlighted by a pandemic. I think it's fair to sometimes question whether America loves African Americans as much as we love it. We can solve these problems if we just do it together. For 93-year-old Opal Lee, independence must commemorate the freedom of all, including Juneteenth, the day enslaved people in Texas learned that all those enslaved in Confederate states had been freed. And I'm advocating that we have Juneteenth from the 19th to the 4th of July. You know, slaves weren't free on the 4th of July. As Americans face a reckoning over racism, past and present, there's no message of healing from the White House. Instead, President Trump is calling a Black Lives Matter street mural a symbol of hate after New York City announced it would be painted in front of Trump Tower. He's also demanding protection for symbols of the Confederacy at campaign rallies. The unhinged left-wing mob is trying to vandalize our history. Desecrate our monuments, our beautiful monuments. During diplomatic visits. Not going to happen. Not as long as I'm here. Even on Twitter. And he's refusing to sign anything changing the name of military bases named after Confederate leaders. I am hopeful that we will, as a country, decide that the Confederacy is something to be studied, not something to be glorified. And we're able to actually celebrate who we are when we celebrate Independence Day. And Jake, kicking off the Independence Day weekend, President Trump will be at uh, Mount Rushmore, where he'll be standing in front of a monument of two slave owners and on land wrestled away from Native Americans, told that uh, be focusing on the effort to, quote, tear down our country's history. This is our country at its very best. What an incredible achievement. Visiting Mount Rushmore today, Bernie Sanders taking in the majesty of the moment, this monument to four great American presidents. Just the accomplishment and the beauty, it really does make one very proud to be an American. Sanders has his own mountain to climb. Don't think for a second this all wasn't by design. They wanted to shut down anything patriotic because they don't want this momentum they have to keep going forward. Trump's bad, America's bad. Get Biden, Biden good that's what it's all about it's not about actually mount rushmore 
They would use anything they can get their fucking hands on to do it. Uh, Jim Acosta, many at the seats of the Trump speech night at Mount Rushmore being zip-tied together, guaranteeing no social distancing for scores of people attend the event, discussing all this and more on Situation Room, because I'm filling in for Wolf, and I'm going to go full left. Julio Rosa, this is why the media is hated so much, and rightfully so. At Mount Rushmore, Trump uses 4th of July celebration to stoke a culture war. New York Times, breaking news, President Trump delivers a dark and divisive speech at Mount Rushmore, leading into the culture wars and barely mentioning the pandemic. Let's think about that for a second. The conservative movement's culture war consists of people on Twitter, like me, who's not even a Republican, Trump, and a few other people. The actual culture war is in the streets burning shit down. Whose culture war? Who started this war? You went from George Floyd police are bad to destroying every fucking city, destroying every fucking monument, burning down elk statues, as we'll see tonight. Looting, murdering, vandalizing. Who is in a culture war? Oh, that's the war you like. I got it, media. Tim Murdoch, we could check the archives, but safe to bet this is the first time CNN has ever described Mount Rushmore as a monument of two slave owners and on land wrestled away from Native Americans. Fascinating how CNN calls Mount Rushmore systemic and quite a sight in 2008, or majestic, excuse me, and quite a sight in 2008 when Obama visited, but now it's a symbol of slavery. Mark Ciano, job security for sure. Well, while the surrogates battle it out in Washington today, the candidates are back on the trail. Hillary Clinton's in Puerto Rico ahead of a tomorrow's primary there. Barack Obama's campaigning in South Dakota. That state's primary is Tuesday. Obama arrived there late last night and got a good look around Mount Rushmore. It's quite a sight if you haven't seen it. Nyan, well, no doubt the campaigns are watching what happens in Washington, but the candidates still have hands to shake and babies to kiss. Barack Obama's in Mount South Dakota today. He arrived there last night. Take a look at this. He got a good glimpse of the majestic Mount Rushmore. Tim Murdoch again. We could get, check the archives. Bet that the first time CNN's ever described as a monument of slave owners, Jeff Zellini called Mount Rushmore a monument to four great American presidents. Bernie Sanders said, this is our country at its best. Called it an incredible achievement, and it really does make one proud to be an American. Yeah. That's what we said in 2016. But in 2020, racist fucking slave owners. Fuck America. Then you go and, once again, the more you know, about to play it again, voters strongly support Mount Rushmore historic statues. 75% of likely U.S. voters do not believe Mount Rushmore should be closed or changed because two of the four presidents were slave owners. 17% believe the iconic memorial in South Dakota should be closed or changed. Similarly, 71 still oppose removing the names of early presidents like Washington, Jefferson, were slave owners from public places and taking down statues. 71%. 18. Agree with it. Which makes me right again. I'm saying maybe about, what, 15 to 20? I keep saying. Damn, I nailed that shit. 
favor such moves. However, this compares to 88% or 7% respectively in 27. The most notable changes on both questions among voters under 40, one-third of these young voters are now ready to close or change Mount Rushmore and remove names because that's all they see on the goddamn media. But when you actually find out what America thinks... Goddamn facts are just always in the way of what the left's talking about. Facts. But here's their article. Trump uses this New York Times. Mount Rushmore speech. The only way I can get this is I VPN'd in to get it because they wanted me to pay to read this. Down in the polls and failing to control a raging pandemic, the president casts himself as a waging battle against a new far-left fascism that imperils American values and seeks to erase history. That's news. No, it's not. It's opinion cloaked in news. Standing in a packed amphitheater in front of Mount Rushmore, President Trump delivered a dark and divisive speech on Friday that cast his struggle of effort to win a second term as a battle against a new far-left fascism. With the coronavirus pandemic raging, the campaign faltering in the polls, his appearance amounted to a fiery reboot of his re-election effort. Ah, he's a racist, he's a racist, he's a racist. They go, they don't talk about what he's talking about. They talk about... Um, pandemic. That's pretty much it. He railed against what he described as dangerous cancel culture intent to toppling monuments and framed himself as a strong leader who would protect the Second Amendment, law enforcement, the country's heritage. The scene at Mount Rushmore was the latest sign of how Trump appears to design or to fault, increasingly disconnected from the intense concern among Americans about the health crisis. No, we're not. I went out this morning to get a goddamn fucking soda for my wife. Nobody was in a mask. There has not been a day with more than 100 new cases. Pandemic, 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 pandemic. That's the story. But it was dark and divisive because he's factually talking about what's happening in the streets. What Americans are talking about. What Americans are feeling. What Americans are feeling. That's dark and divisive. 71% of America agree with him. But that's the gist, isn't it? Well, now we'll just have to label all those people fucking goddamn racist. Because that's the only way we can win this thing. we got to keep labeling them racist. If we label them racist, we win. We win. Because it's not about facts. It's not about what America wants. It's what the left wants. And if the left right now said, hey, we want to fucking change the flag, we want to do this, we want to do that, CNN, the New York Times, WAPO, would be all on it, man. They would be down with the whole cause. Because they hate America because Trump got elected. All this stuff all of a sudden is racist. All this stuff is all of a sudden just horrible from four years ago because Trump's the president. But only 18% of the country are with this. And 8% of that is the fucking media. So then yesterday, I wake up, and oh now, the NFL, who's afraid of the mob, oh, we're just going to play two national anthems now. There's been a lot of talk about the national anthem lately, for better or for worse. But for African Americans, there's a national anthem that goes way back and tells our American story of struggle, triumph, and freedom. 
It's a part of me. It's a part of history. Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring. It's called Lift Every Voice and Sing. I heard it actually going to my grandma's church. I went to Spelman, so they were singing before um, sporting events. Wasn't it an old slave song? Lift Every Voice and Sing actually started as a poem. It was first recited in the year 1900 by 500 school children at the all-black Stanton School in Jacksonville, Florida, as a tribute to President Abraham Lincoln's birthday. The creator of Lift Every Voice and Sing was James Weldon Johnson, a civil rights activist, lawyer, and school principal, who also wrote the poem to introduce Booker T. Washington, who was visiting his school. Johnson's brother, John Rosamond Johnson, put the poem to music, and it officially became a song. Once the NAACP adopted Lift Every Voice and Sing as its official Negro national anthem, the song took on a life of its own. A remake of Lift Every Voice and Sing was done in the 1990s by Melba Moore with fellow R&B artists like Stevie Wonder, Anita Baker, Dionne Warwick, and Bobby Brown. It was even recited during President Barack Obama's first presidential inauguration. Wherever you stand on what to actually call Lift Every Voice and Sing, chances are you fall into the bucket of people who just remember the first stanza. Lift every voice and sing to wherever. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> Lift every voice and sing to Oh, oh. <laughs> Lift every voice and sing to earth and heaven ring. Ring with the harmony of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise. I have the listening skies. politics around Lift Every Voice and Sing, the song itself is powerful in that it talks about staying hopeful, fighting injustice, and knowing the struggle our ancestors endured. It's a part of something that gave people hope and, uh, you know, uh, striving for excellence and uh, kind of sense of community. Just knowing that you have a what do you want to call that? A a place. I'm knowing that you're an individual. You're a citizen. Um, you are here. You are here, and and um, and that and there's there's power in that. I thought this whole struggle was for equality, 
But we're Jim Crow in this shit now. They want their own areas. They want their own dorms. They want their own national anthem. I mean, what the ever fuck? And most people, I guarantee a percentage, percentage of black people, too, never even heard a lift every voice and sing. Snave, I feel like guilty feeling white people came up with this. And that's a fact. NFL had a meeting. Let's get these people off it. We're going to put victims of violence on helmets and jerseys. We're going to do uh, two national anthems. And here's my question. If you take a knee for the black national anthem as a white person, you're a racist, right? And that's wrong. But you could take a knee for the national anthem. I mean, when I went in to fucking get, get a soda and a pack of cigs for my wife, I literally said we can't celebrate July 4th. Mount Rushmore's racist. Washington's racist. The flag's racist. The national anthem's being replaced. Taco Summer. I don't want anyone kneeling for the Black National Anthem, but I would like to know what would happen if someone did kneel. I'm quite sure the pro-kneeling people would be very, very much inconsistent with their support of kneeling for anthems. I thought the National Anthem represented all races and ethnicities, though this just makes more division, doesn't it? Want to hear their BS excuse for when their viewership and revenue disappears? you got to be kidding me. So, NFL, can you also play the Mexican anthem, Japanese, Korean? There's a shitload of people that play in the NFL that aren't black or white. How about them? And then, doubling down, here we go. boo ba 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 bump Don't really care about the Redskin name. I mean, whatever. I question, I'm curious about it. Will fans get to wear Redskin jerseys, gear, new inoffensive home team, home games? Or will those people not be allowed in the stadium? Can't wait for the Washington Post to start doxing fans who show up wearing Redskin t-shirts and jerseys anywhere. Alyssa Milano. I tweeted it today. Literally, all sorts of pictures. Chief, Braves, Redskins. It was all okay. Just a little while ago, they did their Alyssa Milano outfits until all of a sudden they finally caught on that most Americans think Alyssa Milano is a fucking moon bat. But yeah, FedEx is going to pull its goddamn sponsorship of FedEx Field, so now we're going to come up with a new name because Redskins is offensive. Chief, they're not talking about the Chiefs, they're not talking about the Braves yet, just the Redskins, gotta go. But Trump's talking about a culture war. Trump's the dickhead. I got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, When he's saying they're trying to wipe out all our history, he's just making it up because they really are trying to wipe out all our history, (laughs) including football teams and everything. So now we have two national anthems, a black one and a white one. They're saying they're just doing it game one. But I'll bet you my fat ass... Oh, no, 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 no. That's not enough. When reparations isn't enough and wiping out all these statues isn't enough, nothing's enough for these people. They are going to continue to keep doing this until a lefty says no, but the lefties won't say no until November. So before it's done, we'll have fucking nothing left. Nothing. So that's our A block. They are literally wiping out this holiday. They blocked it with coronavirus pandemic bullshit. Then they said everything you do is racist, so you can't do it. All the while, they're still fucking shit up. So as we go to a music break, we're going to play Will Ferrell. I watched the movie Eurovision, the story of fire and ice, whatever the fuck it is, because my wife hates him, but I still think it's kind of funny. And 
there's a lot of tranny stuff in there and stuff like that, but these people actually won Eurovision. So there's a dude that dresses like he's a fucking genie or some shit, and he's got a better beard than I do, but he's actually a tranny. And there's a big fat person that looks like me and drag. They won 2014 and 2017. So that's the only really gay, stupid shit that's in there. It was a funny movie, I gotta admit. Especially the part where they all start killing people. Spoiler alert. But one of the songs came out of it I thought was beautiful. And it's called Husavik. 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 Which means my hometown in Iceland. And I thought it was a beautiful song. So I thought it was funny. So that's going to be our music break. When we come back in, you'll hear the St. Louis mob... At the doorsteps of those poor McCluskey motherfuckers. But luckily they reinforced the gate and got security so they couldn't get in last night. But yeah, once again, that's peaceful. Breaking into people's shit, coming back and harassing them. That's what peaceful protesting is in 2020. Unless you do it for conservative cause, then you're a domestic terrorist. This great big world before me But it's all for someone else I've tried and tried again To let you know just where my heart is To tell the truth and not pretend All I needed Was to get away Just to
Welcome back to Flyover Politics Podcast with Tony Reed. Move outside and let the man go through. Let the man go through. Move outside and let the man go through. Let the man go through. They, 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 they love black lives so much. But look, they got a gate. They installed a new gate. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Chris Cuomo. Yeah, good job, bud. Far-left pro-mob network ignore Mike Lee's Senate resolution condemning mob by violence. We're going to hear his speech later, but it's spot on because BLM is a domestic terrorist group. Rob O'Donnell, if you listen carefully and look around, they will tell you exactly what they want. More dead cops. NYPD, SMD, period, abolish. No more cops. The only good cops are dead cops. FTP pork. ABCD is an acronym for kill cops. Tuck Woodstock, elk fire keeping me warm. NWA playing in the background. I'm so happy I'm Antifa. Peaceful Antifa BLM full-time protesters. Bored and angry kids set elk statue on fire in Portland. An elk. Because elks are famous symbol of racism, and only fascists regret seeing a statue burn. The elk statue in Portland is burning the elk-owned slaves. This is how we end racism. Portland Joe, hope you feel good about your vandalism. The elk was donated by former BBC Portland Bear David P. Thompson in 1900 to commemorate the elk that once lived in the area, because there are a bunch of viral environmentalists out there. And then, while this is all going on, Negative coverage, LAPD just posted this photo of people protesting tonight. People are messaging me asking how this allowed with no social distancing when hours ago the governor said we wouldn't even see our families on July 4th. Everyone needs to understand the lockdown libs love this double standard. They revel in it. It's a vicious blow to their opponents' morale. Democrats like Newsom and Cuomo can take away all your rights on a whim while allowing their mobilized base to take over this fucking street. Here's some Portland fucking violence.
have another one of those incidents where the media goes all in for about two seconds, then realizes, oh, we fucked this up, and then they drop it because there's an altercation in, um, it was uh, Michigan, and basically what happened is a white woman and a black girl, or white woman and a white girl, are in a mall, they bump into these people, the daughter bumps the black girl, it's a big huge thing, then they start arguing, the mom says, you bump me, da 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 da, it looks like it's all good, she says, let's get out of here, because they start going crazy, the black mother goes crazy, they get in the car, the black lady slams into the other one and crashes cars, and that's when the mother drew the gun. But you didn't hear all that initially. It was white woman pulls gun on black woman. So I'm going to play that, all right? And then I'm going to play a a video of a white dude. He looks actually misraced, but he's called a white dude. And he goes to break up this robbery in a mall down south or in a gas station. A pack of six or seven young black kids beat the living shit out of him, knock him out. When he wakes up, they kick him in the face again. Yet, this never was a hate crime, which is really interesting. ...wants to violate a 15-year-old. No, I'm answering a question. She's a she, child. She bumped into me when so I... So she did something wrong. She needs to apologize. If she did this, ignorant woman, apologize. this ignorant woman if bumped into a 15-year-old. Right? Correct. And you're on camera. Okay. You're feeling threatened. Okay, we're going in. No, Mom. I'm not, I got this. You're blocking me from getting no, in my car. No, we weren't. No, we weren't. No, we weren't. You're ignorant. She's ignorant. She's very ignorant. Yeah, I said it. You say something, I'll beat your white ass. You, oh, you will do something. Please put your do something. Hand do something. Please. Who the fuck do you think you guys are? Uh, who do you, Wait, think, who you, are? you, you think you are? You called her name. You did nothing. Yeah, I did. I did. No, you didn't. You're very racist. Yeah. 
So am I covering this because I want to be a racist? No, I'm covering it because all you hear is white person does this, white person does that. They ignore everything. This guy's from London, Port- Portillo's Portobello. This says BBC News and CNN and MSNBC. It's all the same. Broadcast decision matrix. White victim, white assailant. Fill in with no other stories. White victim, POC assailant, don't report. POC victim, white assailant, headline fundraise report for weeks. POC victim, POC assailant, fill in with no other stories. Just ignore it, it never happened. And then you see this from Vice. This is my daughter, this is why she doesn't talk to me, because she listens to the left. How to talk about Antifa with people who are freaked out about it, wrote a little primer. If you're trying to talk to loved ones about militant tactics, know when to end the conversation. And this lady wrote, Natasha Leonard did both. How to talk about Antifa with people who are freaked out. If people in your life seem more concerned with violent anti-fascist protesters than racism, here's how to clarify it. And she goes on and on, and Trump's bad... So what's Antifa? Nothing. They're good people. Where did Antifa come from? It was against Adolf Hitler. Nazis are bad. Why would Antifa and a fascist group not want to protest peacefully? Because they've learned to punch people back. Is it effective? Yeah. What about free speech? Shouldn't anti-fascists respect and believe in other people's rights, respect and viewpoint? In my experience, this question has been a hardest aspect of Antifa to explain to liberal relatives. A family member could ask whether Antifa should bring the disagreement with right-wingers into so-called marketplace of ideas that raise issues of hate speech through the legal system. They may wonder why Antifa participants feel they should or not or are allowed to take things in their own hands. The notion that anyone, even the most vile racist, should be permitted to enjoy the right to spew their idea in public is a central tenet of U.S. liberalism. But see, it's not racism. When you say everything is racism to shut down the debate, this is what they're basing it on. So... Disagreement makes you a racist. There is a view that sees tactical and moral value in allowing neo-Nazis to publicly speak and rally, believing that the fallacies of their hateful views are best made visible. Everything's neo-Nazi. Michigan was white supremacist. There were black and Latinos in the crowd that stormed the fucking Capitol after a temperature check. There are a few ways to address this. First and foremost, we can assert that black and immigrant lives matter, which fascists would deny. And that's not up for debate. This is not an academic question. It's a threat to the lives of people of color. Antifa activists take direct community-based action precisely because they understand the state, especially under Trump, the police, and the legal system to be racist, fascist, 
institutions. For me, I've always found the aspect of Antifa I want most want relatives to understand is that it's reasonable, not senseless. It is reason response to the nature of fascist organization. Antifa practices understand that the desire for fascism is not something based on a reason, so it's not something to be reasoned out of. The point at the very heart of Antifa action is to make unpleasant real-life consequences for those people who engage in fascist organization, a.k.a. don't let anybody with opposing view speak. Be in public. Beat them. If the sense of power domination and belonging to what makes fascism appealing, why young white men are jumping on board, militant anti-fascist action is about shutting down the appeal. Antifa action is not senseless fighting and destruction for destruction's sake. Oh, really? What did the elk do? Antifa, okay, it is based on understanding of how fascism functions, how the desire for it spreads, and how to best intervene. People can disagree about how and when certain tactics are effective, but Antifa practices are based on studies, understanding of fascism, and the need for fascist practice to be quite simply ended. Yeah, they study a lot. They have no facts. Cops don't shoot more black people. Cops don't shoot more unblack people. White people are not in any fucking way a threat to black people, black people are a threat to black people. So there's not a lot of study. I would challenge any relative or acquaintance who de- demands that anti-racists respond politely to those who are committed to upholding and strengthening the status quo of white supremacy, which is deadly for black and brown people. If your relatives remain so troubled by a broken window at a Black Lives Matter protest, your disagreement might not in fact be about tactics that Antifa participants might use, but about whose lives and safety get to matter. And it might, in the spirit of Antifa, be time to shut down that conversation and stop speaking to your family. So here's a little montage, 15 minutes of Antifa violence, and one of them in there is a liberal talking about it. Meanwhile, back home, people are waking up to the routine violence of left-wing activists at protests. You've seen it a lot in the past couple of weeks. In the name of stopping fascism, agitators are showing up at rallies and quickly getting violent. This past weekend, even the Washington Post was forced, against its will, no question, to admit that violence in Berkeley, California, was the work of masked left-wingers. Journalist Tim Poole recently attended one of these rallies and quickly became the target of threats. Watch. Do you believe what they say, though? You really believe them? Do what? That's naive. Why would I? Wow. I'm not a tough guy. I'm a journalist. I'm not making a joke out of it. This is my life. What the going on? Tim Pool, the man being barked at in that video, joins us, as does former Brooklyn radical Donna Carol Vossi. Thanks to you both for joining us. First to you, Tim. I watched that whole video uh, yesterday. It's really, really menacing. But it raises the question I've had since the beginning, which is, who are these people? The masked people, the black bloc, Antifa, Antifa, however you're pronouncing it. Where do they come from? Is this a full-time gig? And what do they believe? It, it tends to be a mix of people. Predominantly, I found that they're communists. There's a lot of socialists involved and some anarchists. But typically, I think when you see the violence, the people who are willing to be more violent tend to be communists. That's more of a, I guess, 
structured ideology, whereas the anarchists are kind of a little loose and don't believe in the authority. But that video is not even the, the worst. You know, that's just one of the most recent. This, this, this guy didn't even touch me. But I've been physically attacked by people associated with the far left and, and Antifa in the past. And this is, like I said, just one of the more recent instances where they've confronted me for seemingly no reason. I mean, this guy doesn't know me. He doesn't know what I'm doing. I was just walking by in Boston with, with a camera, and immediately I, I got bombarded by a group of people with masks on just yelling at me. Right. If you're looking for the, the, the face of hate, it's that right there. But by the way, there have been a bunch of mugshots of these guys after getting arrested and without the face coverings, mostly young, middle-class white kids. Um, not a very diverse group, interestingly uh, enough. Um, so Donna, you were a, a campus radical some time ago in Berkeley, a part of an earlier generation. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the generation you belong to had strong political views, ones I disagree with, but at its core, there was a belief in free speech, wasn't there? Absolutely. That's Berkeley. That's free speech. Well, that's gone. And not only is it gone, <laughs> I don't hear anybody mourning its passing. I don't hear, I mean, presumably a lot of mainstream liberals still believe in free speech. It was you know, one of the pillars of their movement, of, of what they believe, but I don't hear them standing up to demand the right of others they disagree with to have their say. Why? No, I should have said that was Berkeley. It's yeah. ironic that it was Berkeley for free speech and now it's where, you know, Ground Central is for eliminating, crushing free speech. Every protest now is being crushed. Doesn't matter who it is or what it is. Well, it's really, really noticeable. Tim, what do they want? What does this group want? Unfortunately, I mean, it's, it's not one group of people. It's just, right. it tends to be a fractured group of people who share enough of their ideologies that they're willing to get violent to do it. Often I find that many of them truly believe they're fighting a revolution against, you know, this, the empire of the United States. And, and I, I will say that some of these people have legitimate grievances, but as soon as they decide to get violent to push those ideas, they, they discredit themselves. But, you know, unfortunately, I don't think there's a unified cause behind them. Many of the people that we're seeing today associated with Antifa were just anti-capitalist protesters four years ago. Say at Occupy Wall Street, they would chant anti-capitalista. Today, they chant anti-fascista. So it's, it's, it's hard to pin down exactly what, as, you know, as a single group or as a single ideology, what they're trying to do is, because it, it tends to change with, with the trend. Well, that's kind of the point I'm making. We, we were forever trying to book some of these people, because I'm sincerely interested in what they're after but donna i mean if you look back at the protest movements of 50 years ago almost all of them had a specific goal either you know a civil rights bill end the vietnam war end to segregated accommodations i don't think i understand what the goal of this group is other than burning everything down do you that's the goal they have no driving philosophy they are just all about anarchy and if there's even a couple of anarchists in there anarchists it makes the whole group anarchists that's all they want i think is anarchy that's why they fight against free speech in boston or against anti-racism in berkeley it doesn't matter what if people are out there expressing themselves antifa's there to shut them down yeah well it's obviously a fight against civilization itself and we should all join in fighting back i think because that's threatening tim donna thank you Thank you. As freedom of speech and due process have come under heavy fire from the American left in the past five years, one final social norm has remained mostly intact. Mostly. 
That norm is nonviolence in politics, where Democrats in Congress may have had no issue with slandering the good name of a political appointee based on evidenceless rape accusations. You still won't see Chuck Schumer going so far as to throw fists at Mitch McConnell, nor would he call for others to do so. We've even seen Congress come together to support colleagues from other parties when they are physically attacked. When Republican Congressman Steve Scalise was shot and nearly killed by a left-wing ideologue in 2017, members of Congress from both parties came together in a rare moment of unity to support him and condemn politically motivated violence. Of course, as has happened with free speech and due process before it, America's nonviolence norm in politics is showing cracks and seems to be on its way to being undermined by the same supposedly woke forces that purport to be a force for good and against hate. Anti-fascist, as they say. Antifa has emerged as a force for politically motivated left-wing violence. To be clear, these acts of violence have not been explicitly or implicitly endorsed in any way by the leaders of the Democratic Party, but they have gone largely and at times inexplicably ignored. Despite their supposed championing of freedom of the press, Democrats almost completely ignored Portland Antifa members' brutal assault of journalist Andy No, which resulted in a brain hemorrhage and for which there has yet to have been any arrests by the Portland police. Surely, had a journalist of equal stature from the left side of the aisle, say, Ezra Klein of Vox, suffered a similar fate at the hands of right-wing political opponents, there would have been a public outcry, in addition to a weeks-long media cycle about right-wing terroristic violence against the media. Instead, the media coverage of nose assault contained strangely unconcerned prose and language designed to underplay the brutality of the assault. When this happened, I and many others had a simple question. What the hell is happening? Why does no one on the left seem concerned about a militarized group of anarcho-communists brutally assaulting civilians and journalists with impunity from a largely unconcerned media, apathetic municipal governments, and hamstrung police departments? We may have found an answer in Eric Weinstein's most recent appearance on the Joe Rogan Experience, where he pointed out that although Democrats cannot and will not outright endorse Antifa, they seem to be tolerating them as a force that serves a unique role in their mission. There is a cowardly center and a very terrifying fringe, and the fringe is going around the whole thing, right, left and right. The next thing is that people are secretly weirdly sympathetic with their violent, the violent fringe to their extreme, rather than making common cause across the center. So, for example, you imagine that you run a laundromat and you're being visited by a member of organized crime every week. And he comes into your laundromat and he kind of plays with your stuff and he says, oh, it'd be a shame if anything happened to your business, and he shakes you down. Starts saying, oh, you know, I noticed that you have a daughter. I would love to date her. Perhaps, perhaps we'll go out sometime. You hate this guy. Then some sort of violent vigilante element that's operating extrajudicially after you've gone to the police over and over again breaks this guy's kneecaps. Right? You're weirdly sympathetic with the vigilante because you're being terrified by a group that is not being taken care of. So I think that this is in part why some elements of the left that should be more responsible, that have institutional positions, that have platforms that they can broadcast, are weirdly sympathetic to Antifa. Weinstein's metaphor is a clever and insightful one, but I believe he missed the mark ever so slightly. I would rephrase the metaphor, not as the story of one beleaguered business owner and a vigilante justice seeker who comes to their aid, but instead as a story of two rival laundromats and one fanatical customer. 
These two competing laundromats, in my revised version of Weinstein's metaphor, are characterized as follows. One laundromat represents mainstream progressive Democrats, as was the case in Weinstein's. The other additional laundromat represents classical Western institutions and the values those institutions uphold. These two rival businesses engage in a heated battle for customer loyalty and support, just as progressives compete with classical Western institutions for the heart of our society. Antifa also takes on a different role in my version of Weinstein's metaphor. Instead of being a vigilante justice seeker out to defend an innocent business owner from intimidation and thuggery, Antifa itself is the thug. I posit that an appropriate metaphorical role for Antifa is as a customer of the first progressive democratic laundromat who takes his customer loyalty so far as to vandalize and harass the staff and customers of the second classical western laundromat, falsely citing price gouging and discriminatory business practices as the justification. These illegal actions greatly benefit the progressive laundromat as it hurts their competition. Despite this, they would never personally carry out such actions against their rival because doing so would make them appear transparently cutthroat and immoral to customers, driving business away and hurting their bottom line. So instead, they subtly encourage their fanatical Antifa-like customer under the radar, feeding his delusions by lying to him about all of the bigoted, unethical business practices of their competitor. This is a more accurate analogy in my estimation, as in Weinstein's metaphor, he makes it sound like Antifa is fighting to protect an innocent business under attack by thugs. When, in reality, they do no such thing. They are the thugs. Though they may not know it, they are merely minions, rank-and-file goons for the progressive establishment. And so they slander, mob, and assault innocents in the name of a deluded, paranoid fantasy of resisting fascism, which is fed to them as part of a neatly packaged, easy-to-consume product. Wokeness an ideology peddled by crony politicians and media smear merchants which doubles as a product, a consumer product, marketed and designed like many others to provide a sense of identity to those that have none. And that group identity is one that, over time, makes those under its banner easy to manipulate, control, and debase, to the point of doing the previously unthinkable, committing acts of brutal, spiteful, senseless, and utterly unjustified violence. Distressingly, Democrats and media figures have shown cracks in their reluctance to overtly endorse Antifa's actions, sometimes cleverly disguising Antifa vaguely as counter-protesters. And of course, if what's being protested is supposedly, as the media says it is, racism and hate, then the counter-protesters must be anti-racists and anti-hate. So we see Chris Cuomo of CNN saying this. But when someone comes to call out bigots and it gets hot, even physical, are they equally wrong as the bigot they are fighting? I argue no. Think about it. Civil rights activists, were they the same morally as the bigots, as the racists with whom they exchanged blows? Are people who go to war against an evil regime on the same moral ground as those they seek to stop from oppressing the weak? 300,000 likes on Twitter for a video of this man kicking a conservative woman in the face. Hey, destruction of private property. If somebody gets raped by somebody and they're like, I'm a 16-year-old and I can't have this baby, think you should keep it? It's a baby. Yes. If someone was raped and she gave birth and she decided to kill her three-year-old child. And a former Hillary Clinton staffer downplaying the seriousness of the aforementioned assault on Andy No. We are seeing cracks in the facade that the left has tried to put up by staying mum on the morality of Antifa's violent actions. Their lack of concern has evolved into subtle, indirect endorsements, and in some cases, full-throated appreciation of violence against political opponents. 
As Weinstein pointed out, Democrats may not openly support Antifa, but they have identified them as a useful tool for suppression of opposing views through intimidation and violence. And so the formerly separate factions of the elite political and media class and the lowly street thugs of the radical left have been brought together. This unholy alliance is bound together by the fact that they are both set to benefit from the collapse of classical Western liberal values. And so Democrats and the media protect Antifa with their obfuscation of their motivations and downright media blackouts of their most heinous, publicly unpalatable deeds. And Antifa continues to intimidate political opponents with doxing, getting them fired from their jobs, or straight up stalking and assaulting them and their families. It is truly a concerning and, frankly, disgusting symbiosis to behold. Even Joe Biden, the supposedly moderate candidate in 2020, started his campaign by spreading the lie that the counter-protesters at Charlottesville were all, as he said, brave Americans, who were simply there to protest racism, when in reality, many came armed and looking for a fight under the protective cloak of a woke mob aligned with a dubiously sympathetic media and the moral superiority that comes with it. So we see the erosion of the final pillar that holds together Western society, nonviolence the peaceful ebb and flow of power from one faction to the next. Like freedom of speech and due process, political nonviolence is directly under assault by the left-wing woke movement that must be stopped at all costs by those in the intellectual dark web and other spaces that wish to save our society from sliding into anarchy or, perhaps, ironically, fascism. For Antifa, despite its namesake, commits the most fascist of all actions, silencing opposing ideas through intimidation and violence. Other great articles by this socialist. How to talk to relatives who care more about looting than Black Lives Matter. If you're not black but want to support BLM, have fraught conversations with the kind are definitely racist loved ones will likely not be fun, but it's very worthy undertaking. First heading, know your shit. It's really hard to defend something you don't really understand. If relatives are wringing their hands over the fate of the poor small business, CVS, and you don't know what to say, I strongly recommend, in defense of looting, an essay. Focus on what they are saying and doing instead of who they are, are as a person. In her book, Why Won't You Apologize, therapist Harriet Lerner writes about how the greater an offense is, the more difficult it is for wrongdoer to feel remorse. Basically, we feel deeply ashamed when our identity and sense of worth, oh, so we steal shit. Got it. Be willing to share your own growth with them. I used to think the same thing, but when I read this book and conversations with my black friends, got a stern talking to from White Pal and learned some important facts, accepting that all cops are not, in fact, good, so we must treat them all like shit. Okay. Say in no certain terms that you disagree with what they're saying. Be willing to set the terms of conversation to be firm about throughout the entire discussion. I've already told you I'm not going to respond to troll talking. If they bring it up again, why do you talk about this when it's wrong? Okay, if you generally want to hear my thoughts on this, you need to listen to my brainwashing. It's possible help them have empathy for the people who are protesting. How would you feel, in fact, if really I got shot at by black people all the time so I beat up the cops? <laughs> I mean, where are you going with this? Remember when a relative who loved their legal gun had a broken tail light for two months? 
Well, the cops would have shot him. Yeah, okay. I know you say something to a person who let their dog run off a leash in a park when it's against the rules. Oh, Jesus, the Karen. How would you feel if I was shot multiple times while out in the grandma's backyard? Hold the line. Look to another non-black people to help with these conversations. Finally, remember that the fact that your relatives are engaging with you is a good thing. But shut them down. Well, here's a question for you. I'm not going to read the article. Lincoln statues must go. He freed the fucking slaves. But Margaret Sanger, who briefed the Ku Klux Klan and was part of eugenics, gets to stay. There were inconvenient pro-lifers will show you your Sanger own autobiography, and she discussed speaking before the women's branch of the Ku Klux Klan. I accept an invitation to talk to the women's branch of the Ku Klux Klan in Silver Lake, New Jersey. There's pictures of her. So then you start getting pushback. And the big theme is coming up now. Articles like this. Democratic Party is destroying America. It's high time Americans throw out politicians who promote mob anarchists, the destruction of law and order, and disgrace American heritage. And this article is spot on. A new Quetz survey last month, 70% of self-identifying liberals want to rewrite the U.S. Constitution to a new American Constitution that better reflects our diversity as people, based on a historic framework for affirmative action and recent demands for a new modern era of enhanced segregation, a reasonable person might be able to accurately predict that the Constitution might look like. The same survey found 44% of liberals want to blow up Mount Rushmore, according to the Democratic Party. That doesn't sound like an insane idea. The Democrats, Trump has disrespected Native communities time and time again, said to deliver their voting rights, blocked critical pandemic relief. Now he's holding a rally glorifying white supremacy at Mount Rushmore. They're done losing elections. That's all this is about. They give zero fucking shits about black people. They don't fucking care. They just want power. And their means for power right now is to go down this road of let's burn it all down. We'll get all these people fired up. And somehow, some way, they'll vote for us. But they keep losing the reality that no, they won't vote for you. They hate you as much of, as everybody else. They want to break your shit. But the left's so caught up in this. My God, this our music break to go into the woke section and get off the, the fucking violence. Bloomberg quick take. Is this the end of America? And that's a good thing. And just repugnant shit from MSNBC. They want to destroy America. America. I argue to you tonight, all punches are not equal morally. In the eyes of the law, yes. 
But in the eyes of good and evil, Grabian, here's the argument. The multimedia they are strictly principled anti-fascists. And what they see in the Trump administration and what they see happening in this country, they see, they see the neo-fascism that we see. And they've taken a principled stand Grabian, to stand against white supremacists and white nationalists wherever they may show up. It says it right in the name, Antifa, anti-fascism, which is what they were there um, fighting. Listen, there's... You know, no organization is perfect. There was some violence. Grabian. I think that a lot of people recognize that when pushed, self-defense is a legitimate response to white supremacy and neo-Nazi violence. The problem is to equate the violence in reaction against bigotry with the bigotry itself is to Grabian. misunderstand the, the fact that when you go to cancer treatment, the radiation is tough treatment, but it is meant to remove the cancer. They wouldn't have been anywhere near there had it not been for the fact that white supremacists, neo-Nazis were out Grabian. scaring the living daylight out of most of the people in that town. Thuggishness is thuggishness wh wherever it comes from politically, and, and we should be the first to call it out. I disagree. <laughs> I still have trouble conceiving of, you know, one state going to war against the other, but on the other hand, I've seen numerous, even before we just began today, I've seen numerous uh, indications of law enforcement uh, defying governors with regard to masks, which is an incredibly stupid hill to die on. Uh, we've seen these people showing up with long guns at the Michigan uh, State House again because of masks. Uh, so it just, you know, it, we're seeing a lot of actual and implied political violence these last few years, which makes me say, well, you know, maybe there are people who absolutely uh, want to bring about this uh, this great, you know, war, this cleansing or whatever you want to call it. Uh, the uh, Dylan Storm Roof, Storm Roof, the uh, individual who shot up the uh, church in uh, in Charleston, one of his stated goals, I believe, was that he wanted to foment a race war. Uh, and he's not, and he's not the only one. So there are people who are, at, you know, forgetting or putting aside for there are social forces that are pushing us toward this. There are individuals and and groups that are also actively egging that same thing on. Our military, unlike say Spain before the Spanish Civil War, our military is not, you know, about to sort of enforce Trumpism or stomp across the country smashing everything like it did under, you know, Franco in Spain. And that's really encouraging because the military has all the most powerful weapons and, uh, and they're, they have the most people who actually know how to fight and, you know, they have the real power. And if they're not going to do Trump's bidding and if they support protesters and if they have a strong commitment not to do violence on the American people, that's really good and really encouraging. Uh, but the police, are, and, you know, and maybe some militia people like the people with the guns in front of the state houses, it's a different matter. Um, we could, I think a really bad scenario is for there to be major violence between left-wing and right-wing militias in America. Reverend Barber says that if the media wants to cover this violence, then they also need to cover this violence. And America has to be real careful with who she calls violent. Because when you deny health care, that's violent because people die. When you deny living wages and 700 people die a day from poverty, that's violence. Okay, you preach it now. You undermine voting rights. Have mercy, Jesus. That <laughs> <laughs> folk died for. And then because you suppress the vote, people get elected who then protect violent police departments. That's violent. My job is to say to America, justice is the absolute deterrent for rights. 
and for social unrest. And to get to justice, we need to fix the system. Activist Kimberly Jones, who went viral last month, explains the problem facing black Americans using white people's favorite capitalist family pastime. Monopoly. And for 400 rounds of playing Monopoly, I didn't allow you to have any money. I didn't allow you to have anything on the board. I didn't allow for you to have anything. And then we played another 50 rounds of Monopoly, and everything that you gained and you earned while you were playing that round of Monopoly was taken from you. And they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. Listen, you just woke a lot of people up. Some of us are still napping. For one, I will never be able to look at Monopoly the same way again, ever. Sorry. I will never trust that white man in a monocle and a little mustache. I will not trust it. I will not. You you shouldn't trust him. I shouldn't trust it. As the game is, I I don't think that it is winnable. I think that what's going to happen is we're going to have to create a new board. And creating a new game board is something we've seen work throughout history. It's even considered patriotic. American history started with a riot. We would describe it that way today, the Boston Tea Party. No taxation without representation. Yeah. Like, we learned this from y'all. <laughs> we thought this was safe. This was, this is what we're supposed to do. We're using the same patriotic tactics across the U.S. today, and surprise, those strategies still work. This conversation about defunding the police, we're winning. We are actually winning. So we have the opportunity at every single level from our local to our state to our national level to divest out of the ways in which black people have largely been harmed. We accomplished a lot in just five weeks, but there is so much more to come and it's gonna take everyone, especially you white people. Racism is not a black problem that white people need to empathize with. It's a white problem they created that they need to fix. Poking at the media bubble, one podcast at a time. Here's Tony Reid. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Turn it up, turn it on. Rock it like we bear to the bones on the floor. Run it loose, gotta put Okay, so we're mixing things up here. I got the news and social media in the background to this because I tried the woke background. It's just too fucking busy. So we start our woke section, and it's short today, but it, it's just comedic how they do this. And if you, you research back to all the last few op-eds I read, I mean, if you want to sum up leftism in America today... We make the rules, and the rules make no sense, so you shut your fucking dirty mouth. Because forever we have been told that if you, as a male, do not fuck a dude in a dress, you're a transphobe. You're completely a transphobe, because you are excluding those people. And that's why they commit suicide, because you don't want to fuck a dude. Or something. So now we have a black writer. It's sexual... It's not sexual racism for a black person not to want 
to fuck a white person, but it is if you're white and you don't want to fuck a black person. I mean, I don't even know what sexual racism is, but... Writer and LGBT rights campaign Alexander Leon explains that it's when white people exclude people of color from their sex lives, but it's most definitely not when people of color exclude white people. His tweet, sexual racism is racism. If you're white and you find yourself writing off an entire ethnic group from your dating or sex life because you can't imagine finding that attractive, recognize this as learnt behavior which originates and you guessed it, white supremacy. Here's some more info. Before you ask, no, it's not comparable to other sexual preferences, which are either innate, gender, or don't uphold a system of structural oppression, height. No, it's not racism of the POC excludes white people from sex lives. This is often done to protect themselves from racism. Oh, well, that makes sense. I got it now. So... Because white people are so fucked up, I don't want to fuck white people because I might die. Hmm. Yeah. It's just a pet preference. Jam or marmalade is a preference. Deciding that you're not into an entire ethnic group is not. Unlike preferences around gender, racial preferences, and dating are usually considered a result of social conditioning rather than innate or biological. This means that your attraction or lack thereof to a particular race is not an innate preference, but a learnt preference cultivated over a lifetime due to the way you were socialized. And you can unlearn that and get you some brown sugar. I mean, let's not even talk about if a bunch of white guys start banging black guys. They're culturally appropriating and they're pieces of shit. That's a whole nother thing we got. What is sexual racism? An individual's inclination towards having sex with or dating someone based on what person's perceived racial identity. It's commonly used to describe the tendency for white people to exclude certain ethnic groups from their sexual and romantic life based on their preferences. And as you, as you're about to find out, yes, it's a multicultural society that does count as a form of racism. Sorry, not sorry. Yep. You likely grew up in a world where white people were celebrated on the default and only type of attractive. White supremacy extends out to the media, fashion, and popular culture. You literally can't escape it. Imagine how many times the idea that white is attractive was implicitly transferred to you growing up. The models you saw in advertisement, the leading actors in Hollywood films. That gets compounded until you grew up into a predominantly white era. Tim Young. I made up lots of excuses for women not wanting to have sex with me. None has ever been this elaborate. Beast system revealed. Alexander Wade. I thought the entire LGBTQ stance was that people are attracted to whoever they're attracted to because they're born that way. Now you're trying to tell us who, w, who we should be attracted to. I hope this is not a parody post. If not, you're being a hypocrite. And boom, I didn't even think of that. I'm gay. I was born this way. See, they just make it up. It's all made up. And this is the thing about rewriting to our diverse society. We're 77% white. 95% straight. 67% Christian. But you want to base it all on gender, the 0.5% of the country, it's tranny. For all pronouns, 
that you have to fuck transsexuals or gay people who don't want to fuck you, by the way. And this goes on the EEOC laws that we've written by fucking crazy professors on liberal campuses that black people can't be racist. Only white people. Only the majority can be racist. That's it. Okay. So, now it's okay for black people not want to fuck white people, but white people have to fuck black people until we get pissed off that they're fucking our black chicks, and then we murder them. Got it! Alyssa Milano, <laughs> I'm not saying all black people are going to murder people, I'm just saying, but that's next! BLM would have a kitten of a bunch of white boys were blanging the sister on the corner. I'm just saying, it would not work at all. Then we have in our wokeness, one of my favorite hypocrisies, uh, Melissa Lano has things to say about offensive NFL mascots. She has little to say about profiting off of them. And I've been tweeting this all fucking day. It's a picture of her in a chief shirt, a brave shirt, and a fucking redskin shirt. They did a whole line for her. And this was her tweet just a couple days ago. We must end racism entirely, allowing the NFL to continue to use the Redskins' name as destructive to Native communities and cannot be tolerated any longer. Change the name. But I can make money off my whatever percentage I got for every time somebody bought some shitty baby girl fucking shirt that said Redskin on it. Then you have John Arvavis, a fucking liberal think tank dude. Trump's campaign website has a new t-shirt design that looks familiar to you. You're not alone. America first with the federal eagle that's always been on everything. And of course, because he's a twat, he put an SS Nazi symbol with the same eagle. Then somebody shot back, Nancy Pelosi is a Nazi, and on her Speaker of the House website is the same fucking eagle standing on the same fucking circle, which is the American flag, with the same banner underneath, and it's identical. But that's not all. AOC and company. Jennifer Levan-Lear. Oh, fucking hell no. No, enough. As a BU Tweets alum, I say we keep our mascot name, Rhett the Boston Terrier. This is their fucking letter. Dear BU alum, as part of our ongoing conversation about racism and ways it manifests itself in society and on campus, a number of you have pointed out that our mascot nickname, Rhett, pays tribute to a fictional character associated with the Confederacy, slavery, and sexual assault. And that has prompted important conversations. Because, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. And he grabs her and takes her upstairs caveman. I've only seen the movie once. So, yeah, they're going to change the name of the team. The, the mascot. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're fucking stupid. Then we got the New York Times doubling down on the far, far left and BLM. Hawaiian shirts as symbols of extremism. The New York Times has identified a new villain in their insane culture war. Hawaiian shirts. I kid you not. On Monday, freelancer Nathan Taylor Pemberton. Oh, you're a twat. Targeted Hawaiian shirts because some undesirable people wear them. His warning about the dire association connected with the ubiquitous article of clothing came in, What do you do when extremism comes for the Hawaiian shirt? 
It's one of those most disgusting street t- styles of spring. Tactical body armor, customized assault rifles, maybe a sidearm and a helmet paired with a language floral pattern of a Hawaiian shirt. While it's not uncommon to see heavily armed white men toting military-grade gear on American streets, the addition of the Hawaiian shirt is a new twist. It turned up in February at a gun rally, writes... A gun rights rally in Virginia and Kentucky, then in late April at coronavirus lockdown in Michigan and Texas. Think of the shirts as a campy kind of uniform. But for members of the extremist group adhere to the idea of the boogaloo, oh, second civil war in the United States. I'm done. That's it. Fuck. So later on in the article, so it's a strange moment for Hawaiian shirts. Despite the occasional intervention by luxury designers Prada Louis Vuitton, the shirt is more commonly associated with midlife crisis and sometimes manic hipster energy, and in some interpretations, American colonialism in Hawaii. There's a hazard with trying to make a symbol back from an alt-right, especially when there's no precedence of use on the left, he said. You can never fully claim that's no longer poison. So get rid of the shirts. By the way, I bought a Hawaiian shirt. I just bought one. 17 bucks on Amazon. I'm just going to wear it to freak people the fuck out. Not a white supremacist. Not in a militia. Unless you count Huskies as a militia. I got a militia of Huskies. What the fucking factual fuck? Because somebody wore that thing. If that's the case, then all black bandanas are Anifa. Black bike helmets, Anifa. Black shirts, Anifa. Everything black's Anifa. They are actually doing a civil war on the streets. Not the boogaloo that you guys keep talking about, because you really made it up. I never even heard of the boogaloo until recently. That's, you know, that's this whole alt-right thing was made up by a lady who's a fucking homophobe, Joy Reid, and it went mainline on her shitty show. And now they're giving her a nightly show. Our next wokeness, men's makeup goes mainstream with CVS rollout, and I'm not reading it. Go fuck yourself. If you're wearing fucking makeup, go fuck yourself. Just go fuck yourself and eat a bag of dicks. I said it. I don't feel bad. It's vulgar. I don't give a fuck. Fuck off. But our top of the mountain of wokeness for today, and it ends our woke section, and we go into soundbite of the day. You knew this was coming. You knew some fucking gay surgeon, some LGBT freak, of an ally was going to come up with this. Transgender should be transgender women should be allowed womb transplants so they can have their own baby. Transgender man who gave birth to a baby and that's what they roll off of. Those stories about a girl who has a beard now, but you still had a baby. Remember we had like five or six of them this year? Now they're calling for womb transplants. Last podcast, it was a birthing pod. Now we're going to have wombs. As womb transplant surgery is further improved and perfected, it's vital trans women are not excluded from the conversation. It could immeasurably improve a great many lives. The Gender Recognition Act 2004 says that a trans female can apply for a gender recognition certificate if they wish for their acquired gender to be legally recognized in the UK. Applicants must go before a panel documenting any treatments that have changed their sexual characteristics, such as hormone treatment or surgery. They must have lived in their acquired gender for at least two years, if single, or six in a civil partnership. So the next thing's coming to America... 
is that we need to make sure under our health care system you're giving womb transplants along with transgender reassignment fucking surgeries. You fucking people. Get the fucking fuck out of here. Do you know that a woman can do that because she has fallopian tubes? It's called biology. You can't transplant uh, fucking fallopian tubes and a cervix into a man and have it live. The body wasn't designed that way. You can put fake titties on. You can make a fake, fake cock. But it won't be pumping out sperm. The body will reject it. It's not supposed to be there. You fucking idiots. That's the top of the fucking... The very top of the woke mountain. Now we're going to have womb transplants. To our fucking soundbite of the day. A Korean vet saying what all vets want to do. Give me a goddamn gun. Fuck these communists. (laughs) And then the Seattle bike police. This is the coolest video. They're just strolling around on their little fucking mountain bikes. And they they do a guy... It was like a Bradley fighting vehicle. They assaulted these protesters. Just fucked their asses up. And it made me smile. Well, my gosh. What can I say except, Debbie, you're going to Paris, and this is the final answer heard all around the world. He's won a million dollars. Join this country now! Let him have they say it's okay. Give me a gun, I'll shoot you. No, 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 it's okay. It ain't okay. I fought for the freedom you guys enjoy. I was with my daughter. I have God bless you. Thank you very much, sir. I'm not going to flip out because they got their opinion. It's okay. They don't want to have Let's go to He's a communist person. They're communist. some good shit there so before we go into our this is america and we close this bad boy out i wanted to play mike lee he isn't my representative but i think he's speaking for a lot of us that are watching our tv and going this is bullshit does the senator so modify his request reserving the right to object as i look at the language proposed by my colleague from new jersey could accept the rest of it except for the words especially the president of the United States. The rest of it is unobjectionable. 
The point here is, is that it? without pointing to any one specific individual, we should all be able to acknowledge as a sense of the Senate that we do hold these truths as self-evident, that our country was founded on these very strong ideals, even if, as the resolution itself acknowledges, we have failed at times to live up to them, we've still done it. And so I'd accept the modification, but only with the removal of the words, especially the President of the United States. Mr. President. Objection is heard. Senator from Utah. Mr. President, what's happening here? This is the United States Senate. Just so everyone is clear about the bat guano inspired insanity that we just witnessed, I just proposed a non-binding resolution condemning mob violence, and Senate Democrats objected. I don't know whether to be outraged or embarrassed for them. This isn't even a bill. It's just a statement that says mob violence is bad. That Democrats can't say mob violence is bad without simultaneously taking a jab at the President of the United States. By the way, what, what about the mayor of Seattle? What about the city council of Minneapolis? What about countless other people who have perpetuated or enabled or facilitated or coddled mob violence across the country? It's one of the reasons why we're not going to engage in this, uh, the, 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 this task of making it a political tit-for-tat. It's not that. People are being shot. Businesses are being looted. Innocent Americans are being attacked and threatened. Lives are being ruined. Communities are burning literally burning. So whose side are you on? This resolution was designed to be unifying. It, it, it avoided controversial Mr. President, subjects. It asked, Mr. President, Mr. President from Hawaii. May, may I ask the presiding officer to remind us of, the, of Rule 19? The chair will remind senators of both parties that Rule 19 provides that no senator in debate shall directly or indirectly by any form of words impute another senator or another senator's any conduct or motive unworthy or unbecoming of a senator. The resolution was designed to be unified. It avoided controversial subjects. All it asked of us was basic dignity and respect. As long as we're on the topic of Rule 19, it's unbecoming to accuse a colleague of using language that is supremacy simply by reflecting on language in the Declaration of Independence, simply on, by reflecting on language that acknowledges the incivility and the intolerability of mob violence. But apparently that's too much to ask today. I guess we should be thankful for clarity, and now we know. We don't have to ask. They told us how they feel about this resolution. You can't really oppose this, it seems to me, without being on the side of the mobs, of mob violence, of mob mentality, of cruel, cruelty and intolerance and terror. Now we understand what this resolution is about. I don't think one can oppose this without being comfortable with those things. These mobs are not progressive. These mobs are not enlightened. These not mobs are not edgy. They're not hip. They're fraud. They're dim-witted, phony drama addicts. Mr. President, uh, parliamentary inquiry. Is this line not in direct violation of Rule 19? 
The chair concludes that pointing out that mob violence is dangerous to our nation is not contrary to Rule 19 or any other rule the, of the Senate. Further parliamentary inquiry. It's not a question of mob violence. The question is that imputing to members who did not agree with the framework and language of this resolution that they are supporting mob violence. That must be in violation of Rule 19 if this is going to be a deliberative body. <laughs> the senator is more than entitled to express his views in the course of debate. But other senators will likewise express their views in the course of debate. Failed by an education system and addled by a social media culture that taught them to be victims instead of citizens. A privileged, self-absorbed crime syndicate with participation trophy graduate degrees trying to find meaning in empty lives by destroying things that other Americans have spent honest, productive lives building. And today we learned, today we learned that there are those who are comfortable with this. There are those who are at least not inclined to vote for this resolution, which simply condemns mob violence. Now we know, Mr. President, now we know. And I want all my colleagues to know that when we return from recess, we're coming back to the Senate floor. And we're not just going to be debating non-binding resolutions. It's long past time to expose the shiftless idiocy of the anti-American, anti-science, anti-establishment, anti-constitution mob and remove their snouts from the federal trough. Colleges and universities that punish free speech and discriminate against conservative and religious students City councils who defund their police departments and refuse to protect public safety. States that force doctors to mutilate confused children without their parents' consent. School districts that embrace the ahistorical nonsense of the 1619 Project. The smug, sneering privilege of all of the above and much more. The, the whole garbage fire that is the so-called woke ideology depends on federal money. The mob hates America on America's dime. It's time to cut off their allowance. I think the American people would be very interested to know who stands for them and who stands for subsidizing the mob. I intend to show them. Mr. President, this debate is not ending today. It's only the beginning. Mr. President. Mr. President. The Senator from Utah. Mr. President. All I asked in my counter was that we remove the words, especially the President of the United States. Why? Because that's different than the entire approach taken by the resolution. As long as we're calling each other out on casting aspersions on each other's intentions, there's no one's intention here to shield anyone from anything. As evidenced by the fact that as my proposed modification would have provided, it would have said, our elected officials should not incite violence or legitimize those who engage in hate-fueled acts. Last I checked, the President of the United States was and is an elected official. This would apply to him. Mike in no way insulated, not him, not any elected official, not any of us, from this resolution which simply condemns mob violence. To our This is America, 
I just kind of threw some shit together because it kind of hits all the gamuts. You have MSNBC featuring a nonpartisan group that's actually a bright in front. CNN, Red States, COVID or bullshit. And Brooke Baldwin, the very icon that we use This Is America from, allows a guest to come on and say that Trump's the terrorist-in-chief. Not the commander-in-chief. Something that if you said under Obama, you would be deemed a racist. Un-American and a piece. Oh shit! This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. It's time for the last soundbite. Like the media say when they are pushing fake liberal agenda stories. This is America in 2019. Joining us now, U.S. national editor at the Financial Times, Ed Luce. He's out this morning with a new piece entitled, How America Could Flunk Its Democracy Test. And uh, Ed, some would say we already have, but uh, take us through your theory. Well, um, this is based on um, exercises I did with a group called the Transition Integrity Project as a nonpartisan group that conduct, much like the Pentagon does war games, they do electoral war games, and they have four scenarios um, for this November election, three of which ended up in constitutional breakdown by January. And really, the this was an... A, a, equally divided the players between Republicans and Democrats. I participated in one of them. And it was extraordinary to see how, in those three out of four cases, uh, President Trump simply refusing to leave office and using the awesome powers at his disposal to federalize the National Guard, for example, deploy Bill Barr to contested states like Wisconsin, Michigan, and so forth, to stop recounts, um, that... Trump would be prepared to use those amazing powers at his disposal. Well, uh, Ed, you know, we have long believed, uh, conservatives, I think, that you hope for the best, you plan for the worst. Um, so it's I, it, these exercises are extraordinarily important just so Americans can go into the fall with their eyes wide open. Uh, you know, and I think forewarned is forearmed. This project, uh, it's a very important project. Um, set up by Rosa Brooks of Georgetown and Nils Gilman of the Ben Gruen Institute. Um, this project is, is not an exercise in prediction or forecasting. It's, it's taking us through exercises of what could happen so that we're better able to anticipate and prevent them from happening. It's very interesting. The fourth of those scenarios that the Transition Integrity uh, Project conducted, the one that didn't result in constitutional breakdown, which was where Biden wins very clearly, both the Electoral College and the popular vote. Um, Trump still doesn't want to quit office um, until um, the president-elect Biden offers him a, a blanket pardon, at which point Trump leaves office and um, gets uh, Saudi funding for, to launch MAGA TV. Friends, I want to put up the map. 16 states over the last 24 hours have announced they are pausing or halting or you know putting the brakes on reopening plans and as we keep this map up i want to draw your attention to arizona texas georgia 
Florida. What do these states have in common? These are states with Republican governors that are increasingly in play in the presidential election right now. So you have Republican governors now addressing this pandemic in a way that may or may not uh, coincide with the White House agenda right now. Instead, as you look at this, what do you see playing out? I see the interesting difference between politics and governing. Uh, these are all states, as you said, with Republican governors who are a little more conservative than we know the electorate is. And these are all Republican governors who have sought to appease the president and kind of listen to the, to the loudest voices coming from the White House that have encouraged them to reopen and have encouraged them to kind of downplay the impacts of the coronavirus pandemic. That well, absolutely. And because it was left to the governors of the states, there is, as Stead pointed out, a different political relationship to this issue between the Democratic governors and the Republican governors who were trying to focus on appeasing the president, who were ignoring the facts on the ground. And we have some Republican governors uh, in states, I'm thinking in the Midwest, where we've seen outbreaks at meatpacking plants and those numbers are not being reported fully. The challenge here for elected officials is when the rubber meets the road and the cases are going up and behaviors are not matching what the science is telling us, like social distancing and wearing masks, and the president is polarizing those issues, which is resulting in less people wearing masks and more people getting... Well, he, uh, as he's tweeting this, he's tripling down. Because if you just look at this week alone, Melina, right, the fact that he shared two videos on Twitter, one of which showing, uh, you know, this guy shouting white power, the other showing this couple in St. Louis pointing those guns at protesters, and then this NYPD tweet. It is only Wednesday. He, he is stoking the racial divide in this country. The election is still four months away. So if, and quite frankly, when the president does this again, how should the country respond? Well, I think we need to remember who he is, that, you know, Donald Trump is the embodiment of white supremacist terrorism. Um, when he is, you know, tweeting videos of people throwing up white power and um, really entrenching himself within the white terrorist movement, right? He's done that not just only over the last week, but over the last four years. And you see that really manifest in terms of the surge in hate crimes, um, who, which are primarily meted out on black people and at the hands of white people. And so it's really important to understand what Donald Trump has done to this country um, and where he's chosen to align himself. And, you know, for him, again, to call anything hate, um, is really the height of hypocrisy. And, you know, we need as a country to be willing to point to him and say that he is actually the terrorist in chief. Hmm. Wow. Those are strong, strong words. Obviously, the White House would dispute that, but you're, you're allowed your freedom of opinion. And the fact is that the president is highly critical of Black Lives Matter. It's all in, man. They, they will go every angle they possibly can. But this angle was my favorite. All week, the media, people on MSDNC, and I know this is America, it's supposed to be our last soundbite, but I can't resist this. This is Rachel Maddow. Uh, we're actually going to get the um, jobless numbers, the unemployment numbers for the month of June a day earlier than we would otherwise expect them. So we would usually get those on a Friday. They're going to come out tomorrow. That'll tell us unemployment figures uh, for June. 
brace yourself, it's going to be absolutely terrible. So basically for three consecutive months, the media said the economy is not going to improve. We are going to be in the greatest depression. We're going to go back to the Great Depression. We're not going to have anything. Our lives are shit. And they leave out that it's because of COVID that people got laid off. They leave all that out. It's just Trump's fault. CNBC, breaking U.S. job increase 4.8 million in June versus 2.9 million estimate. Unemployment rates down to 11. Red state, June jobs number, demolish expectation. Democrats and media rush to spin. Washington Post, analysis. The grim, unmentioned downside of the employment Employment records Trump is hiding. The grim unmentioned. This is a bad thing. Attila the honey bun. Told you they were mad at 4.8 million people found work. Didn't vote for him. Come up with a better insult. The greatest job report in record history. New York Times. Okay, team. How can we shit on this? Chuck Schumer. Today's job report may just be a slight peak in a much larger valley unless Trump demonstrates real leadership and the Senate GOP get off their hands and work with Democrats to provide additional federal fiscal relief. The pain America's experiencing will only be worse. I remember the Republicans doing this under Obama in 2012 and the media saying it was un-American. Bella Donnell. While Democrats destroy their cities and economic and e- economies, allowing mob rule and their citizens to be unprotected, Republicans pull together and get back to work. Sucks to be a Democrat. The White House. A look at John, June's historic job numbers. 2.1 million leisure and hospitality jobs. Hospitality, excuse me. 740,000 retail, 568 education and healthcare jobs, 357,000 service jobs, 356,000 manufacturing jobs. John Carl, the president left his news conference without answering a single question. That's how they covered it. Jerry Diamond, it's not a news conference you don't take questions. Jim Acosta, after making comments on job report and resurgence of virus, Trump leaves the White House billed as a news conference without taking questions. He has done this repeatedly in recent weeks. Sonny McFunnyface, oh no. Now, how will Acosta and Yamachi get a chance to present Democratic talking points in poetic form and get a new material for their books? They shit on it. Simultaneously, Twitter censors, censors Trump redoing his own fucking meme. It's a meme of him. Somebody making fun of him. And then we get to the best part of our media. These are old tweets by CNN. President Trump says he's taking hydrochloroquine. That's terrible. Brian Seltzer, why today's White House briefing was disturbing? Presidential misinformation from the podium? Dangerous and unconfirmed claims that hydrochloroquine gratuitous shots at rival politicians? A 2.10 a.m. Central Friday morning. A surprising new study found that controversial anti-malarial drug hydrochloroquine helped COVID-19 patients better survive in the hospital. Tim Poole, I can't keep track anymore, so Trump was right again? How long until you find a different study and reverse it, CNN? Brandon Morse, CNN surprised by the study that it contradicted their narrative and that what they've been pushing for months purely out of CNN's hate for a single guy in D.C. 
Carl Gustav, it bothers me less that all their anchors are hacks, but that CNN management has cultivated this hot mess and presents them with a straight face as journalists. Nicole Arbor, beautiful woman, by the way. Just a little side-by-side fun for y'all. Over the past few weeks, President Trump has made several erroneous statements relating to hydrochloroquine studies. 2.10 in the morning, a surprising new study found that the controversial antimalarial drug hydrochloroquine helped COVID-19 patients better survive in the hospital. That's how far they'll go. That's how far the media will go. And it's unbelievable. No intellectual honesty. If Trump says A, they go with B. That's how we started with Mount Rushmore and the national parks are racist. Because Trump was going to a Mount Rushmore and a national park. That's America right now. And don't even get me started on how dangerous this is. How they are fanning the flames of more racial division, more people dying, more businesses getting looted. It hasn't stopped. They are still fucking shit up every night. They just don't put it on the news. And they don't film their neighborhood with kill-all cops. Remember, when this shit started under Obama, we were playing BLM, kill the cops. Fry them like bacon. BLM and Antifa are violent organizations that the media is defending by not outing just because they hate Trump. And as my wife said last night, the simple simple fact that you're going to destroy July 4th to own a culture war while saying a president is fighting a culture war by standing in front of Mount Rushmore and giving a history lesson to America shows that you are not journalist. You have become what he said hyperbolically, the enemy of the people. You're the enemy of America. You want to see America fail until November 3rd, 2020. And then all of a sudden, you're going to be flipping really quick trying to promote anything Joe Biden does. And we're going to watch it. And we're going to have four years of you dogging everything the president does. And then CNN's going to spin that Biden is on point. He's doing everything right as he removes everybody's rights that don't vote for him. That's exactly what Obama did. There was a guy yesterday saying, you don't need a thousand rounds. And I broke it down for him. He was a conservative. And I said, why wouldn't I? Why am I sitting on 2,000 rounds? Well, because the Democrats are going to make sure I have to do a background check, which is a fee, and then pay taxes on ammo. And just like Obama did, they're then going to buy out all the AR ammo for something for HHS so that they could flood the market with nothing. They're going to make it harder to buy a gun. You're going to have to have a license, which I'll be good because I'll have a concealed carry, which is what I did. And how I wanted to end the show. My wife is so scared to go out because of everything she's seeing. I wasn't going to take the test. 
in January of 2021, you won't need it. You'll just fill it out. They'll do a background check, and you'll get your concealed permit. She didn't want to wait. So I did my application, and I'll go down in two weeks. Got the way for a Social Security card because I don't, I couldn't find my Social Security card. <clears throat> so it's in the mail, and I will go get a concealed carry permit so that my wife could feel comfortable going to Kroger because it's just out of control. They have unleashed the mob, promoted the mob, not reported the mob, and all you have to do is go to Twitter. If you don't have a Twitter account, get one just to look. That's why I got one. It wasn't to tweet. It was to see what was really going on, and it's the polar opposite of what the media say. From the 2016 Democratic Convention till now, I have been astounded with what I really see with people on the ground. They obfuscate everything to promote democratic ideals, regardless of how extreme they are. I mean, we have two national anthems now. Think about that. We had a black president for eight years. We never even heard of Juneteenth and lift up all your voices or whatever the fuck they're calling this thing now. That was something nobody talked about, ever. And he was the blackest of the black. He made sure everybody knew he was black. He made sure he sided with every black incident that ever happened in the country with, if I had a son, he'd look like him. He involved himself. The reason why they hated him is because he didn't give them reparations. And totally side and abolished all the police, which is what they were already calling for. This is crazy. It's July 4th, 2020. July 4th, 2020. In America, to our media and the Democrats, isn't worth celebrating. They made sure they shut down all celebrations with the COVID and then labeled all other celebrations as white supremacist. While they say the national anthem's racist, the flag's racist, every forefather's racist, every monument's racist, everything's racist. And as I've said since I started this show, when everything is racist... Nothing's racist. The word means absolutely nothing now. Because if you don't fuck black people, you're a racist. That's now a thing. So this wraps up another episode of Flower Politic Podcast. Share this with family and friends. And send comments to F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Fop podcast gmail.com. Get the show on SoundCloud, Pocket Static, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, and Pocket and Downcast. Remember, check out the Twitter account at Fop Tony Reed. So we've done a bunch of podcasts back to 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 back. So I'm going to shoot for a 9 July year of our Lord 2020. That'll be our next. I don't care what happens. I'm not going to get on the mic. And then after that, we'll go to the 14th because that'll be my drug day. I always do a drug podcast when I go see my doctor get out in the world and see people. That'll be the uh, 14th. So the 9th and the 14th. I hope you enjoy your July 4th. I know this is kind of a dumpy negative one uh, after the first 20 minutes, but I'm just reporting the facts. And the facts are our media's broke. So make sure you disconnect for them this weekend. Don't give the yeah yeah. Spend some time with your family. Burn you some hamburger before the Democrats ban it. Blow up some fireworks in the air. Not at people like they're doing in the BLM riots. 
And tune back in Thursday for another exciting show. As always, oh, as we go out, I'm just going to play the Star Spangled Banner with guns again, not the usual closeout. But as always, thanks for listening. Take care. Yeah, and I'll go big G, big E, yeah. Dang, 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 dang. Dang, dang, dang. You're just walking E to left. So ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. What? Did I just miss that? Oh, weird. Okay. Ready, add action. <laughs> oh, man.